you so much. We lift the graces up to you tonight. We friends i'm excited tuesdays as you saw in the group chat are my favorite nights of the week and i hope are becoming a favorite night for you also please excuse my voice i am not sick i promise i will not get you contagious i was just at taylor swift this weekend so naturally i was reliving my youth and scream singing on in my great seats and I've lost my voice so I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm going through puberty right now I am just it's gonna be all over the place tonight but I'm really excited to be here with you guys I'm really excited because we are continuing through our series in the book of James okay so if you've been along with us for the second half of the semester you met me week one where we talked about chapter one you were with Elizabeth last week where she talked about chapter two and tonight we're going through chapter three so if you remember from my context that i gave week one this book is written by the half brother of jesus and his name is often translated as jacob so you may hear jacob and james used intertwined um, and this book is a full collection of these short teachings and wise instructions to people who claim to be christ followers or christians and this book is super practical, and what it does, which I appreciate, is it takes really dense theological claims and concepts of faith and turns them into very short, tiny, catchy one-liners of wisdom that we can grab onto and apply to our day-to-day -day lives. But if you remember what I said week one, I said that this book would challenge you, right? I told you that James really tries to get in your business. And if you were here last week, then you know I was not lying. It really, really does get in your face. I don't know about you, but the verses that Elizabeth preached on last week really got in my face. And I'll recall a couple of the lines that she quoted. Um, if you remember James chapter 2, verse 17, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Just straight up dead. Which for me, when I'm humble and honest, that is incredibly convicting. Or if you remember that story in Mark that she quoted, where the paralyzed man had the friends who lowered the man through the roof to the feet of Jesus, and it said that Jesus, what? Saw their faith. He didn't read their minds or hear about their faith. He saw their faith. That challenges me. That is really, really convicting. And it forces me to ask this question that I really don't love asking myself because it's not often something that makes me feel super great about myself. But I ask the question, especially after listening to Elizabeth's message last week, if Jesus looked at my life, what would he see? Would he see faith in my life? Many of you have conversations with me about asking how you can actually grow in your faith. And oftentimes, you know, maybe I've said this to you or maybe you've heard this elsewhere, we hear this language, well, okay, you wanna grow in your faith? Read your Bible more, pray more, get plugged into a church community. And all of that is super true and very, very necessary. 
But what James does in his book is he challenges us to be a little bit more introspective than this, than the, uh, just those answers um, give us. What he talks about is how to live out your faith. And he doesn't focus on what you can do, but rather the person that you actually are right now at this moment. He doesn't talk about serving or tithing or attending the church. He goes straight to the heart of us as humans. He says, okay, you call yourself a Christian. You want to be a follower of Jesus and you want to say that you have faith, right? Which we all mostly claim to. Okay, he says, well, how do you respond to God? How do you act when you're wronged? What type of thoughts do you have when something doesn't go your way? How do you respond when the future is unknown? What do you do when you experience hardship? What are the thoughts and things that you say to yourself in your head? What do you say about other people? What do you say about God? How do you treat people that may seem hard to love? And at what point do you actually surrender to God's authority in your own life? All of this is what I love about the book of James and what I think each of us would be better off for if we truly absorbed the words that he has for us. Elizabeth covered a lot of examples, too specifically, of what James declares are real markers of faith. She talked about favoritism, how that applies to how we treat other people, how we apply it to scripture and the law. And tonight, we are going to focus in on two other markers of real faith. These are two things that if you don't pay attention to or you neglect them, then I think you will always wonder why you are not growing in your faith. But on the flip side, if you actually nurture these things and you consistently take inventory of them, then I think you will see improvement in the quality of your day-to-day -day life. I think you'll experience transformation into the best version of yourself that God intended you to be. And I think that you will experience transformation in your faith altogether. So I'm really excited to jump into these two real markers of faith. So if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in chapter three, but before we get started, I'm gonna pray for us. God, I just thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for the students that are in this room. God, as always, I pray that the words I speak and the message I prepared would not be my own agenda or my own thoughts, but would really allow your spirit to move freely into this space. God, and that the Holy Spirit would move in the hearts of all of the people that are in this room. Lord, I pray that they hear from you tonight, that they experience you, and that all of us leave here feeling closer and more connected to you and to each other. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, I want to start by asking you to remember. I want you to remember, what was the last thing that you said last night? And for those of us that uh, are ADHD or have really bad memories, this can be a tough challenge. 
What was the last thing you said out loud last night? What was the very first thing you said this morning? I'll give you a few seconds to actually think about this. What was the last thing you said last night? What was the very first thing you spoke out loud this morning? And think about the context of those. Who'd you say that to? Where were you? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? The last thought you had last night, last thing you spoke out loud, and the first thing you spoke this morning. Okay, now I want you to try to guess how many words do you think you have said today? <laughs> Just come up with an estimate in your head. Did you say one word today? No chance. Y'all are talkers and I freaking know it. <laughs> Three words? 30? You think you said a, more than 100 words today? Well, you said 12,000. 12,000? 12, <laughs> <laughs> That's probably fair, honestly. Yeah. Thou you think you said thousands of words today? Yeah. Maybe? That's like probably kind of fair, actually. <laughs> Maria, we know. You've said at least one billion. <laughs> if you're anything like me, then it might be kind of hard to actually remember what the last thing you said was or what the first thing that you said this morning was. If you know me, I am a talker also. And so I have no, I mean, God only knows the amount of words I've spoken today or over my whole lifetime. I cannot remember. Often I'd say it's a pretty fair assumption that we are pretty nonchalant about our words. Unless you're an English major or you're like Elizabeth who loves to do word studies for fun, then you probably don't think too deeply about what the words that you're actually saying are. And I often think that we speak pretty casually so much so that our words don't often seep into our long-term memory, but rather live in the shallow end where you can barely even recall the words that you spoke today, yesterday, in one week, in one month, the words you've spoken in a year, the words you've spoken in your lifetime, like we have no ability to recall these things. We are very nonchalant with our words. And here's a hot take. I think this is really unbiblical. I think the value and the importance of our words is a constant theme throughout scripture. It is mentioned countless, countless times. And speech, if you look, is actually how the biblical story begins and also how the biblical story ends. Our words, what we say to each other, to ourselves, to God, all matter to the Lord deeply. And James, the author that we're reading from, he picks up on this from his years of studying the Hebrew Bible in books like Proverbs, and he learns this from growing up with Jesus. In fact, James also makes speech a theme throughout his whole book, 
and he mentions the importance of our words in every single one of these five chapters. In chapter three, the chapter that we're going to be studying tonight, James is going straight to the point about why we should care about our words. And he sandwiches these 12 verses that he wrote in chapter three centered on our tongues, our words, and speech between the part that Elizabeth read last week about faith and action and between a section on wisdom. And I think this is incredibly intentional because what James is saying right off the bat is, look, you can measure a wise, mature, faithful person by the words they speak. So as people in this room who I think want to be wise, mature, faithful people, let's see what James has to say. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up. If you don't, nifty cam over here. We'll have them on the screen for you. We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. This is terrifying if you're someone like me who preaches week after week. And in the context of this, James is seeing that there's a problem with a ton of the Jewish leaders at the time all trying to teach in church, okay? And he's trying to make it clear that this isn't a position for every single person that believes. And one thing he says about that is that teachers of the word, they take on a huge responsibility that is often stricter and heavier. And while this is really important and true today for people who are called to be pastors or preachers or teachers of the Bible, I don't think this discounts every single person of faith. And for our time tonight, I want to argue the importance of just being called a Christian in general. I think when you call yourself a Christian, you immediately take on the responsibility of representing Christ to the world. And this is the most important thing that you will do. And it's worth recognizing that responsibility because I think we all know, Elizabeth talked about it last week, what is the number one thing that non-believers say about Christians? Hypocrites. Hypocrites, yes, Lauren, that we are hypocrites. We do not want to be like this. And so all that to say is this scripture that we're going through is also for you whether or not your life mission is to become a pastor or a preacher or a teacher of the Bible. Sound good? Okay. Go with me to chapter 3, verse 3 through 6. It says, When we put bits into the mouths of the horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it itself set on fire by hell. Okay, I think the temptation that we face when we read this, especially those of us that grew up in church, and have maybe heard this a lot of time, is that we push aside the scripture, we kind of do a little eye roll and we say, yeah, yeah, I get it. My words matter, they're powerful, yada, yada, like let's move on with our lives. But 
let's resist that temptation, okay? Because honestly, this is something that we need to be reminded of every single day. We cannot overhear this message because not a single one of us in this room have fully mastered it. What I think James is really getting at with this part of scripture is self-discipline. Would you describe yourself as a disciplined person? Are you someone who is in control of yourself? Or do you relate more to someone like Paul when he says in Romans that he does not understand what he does, he does what he doesn't want to do, and he doesn't do what he wants to do? If you are not taking inventory of your words, then you are lacking discipline over your speech. James is saying that just like the bit, the part that goes on the horse's mouth, and a rudder on a ship, our tongue also controls us. Just like a forest that is burned by a single spark, our tongues can also erupt like fire, and they can burn everything in our wake. They can burn our relationships, our mental spaces, our view of ourselves, our connection to God. And he gives an example of this, if you continue on in verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings. We have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. I'm going to echo James here for a second. We, in this place, Wesley, we cannot be people like this. And things I'm about to say might come off harsh, okay? But I want you to hear my heart. We cannot be people like this. We cannot be people that show up on Tuesdays and sing worship songs and then with the exact same mouth go and talk trash on our friends or our ex-friends or wish harm on people that have harmed us. You know a phrase I hear often? The Wesley Rumor Mill. I often have conversations where I hear the Wesley Rumor Mill. And there's this reputation that I've caught wind of about this underbelly of Wesley, the side of the community that often gossips and judges, all in the same house where we gather together on Tuesdays. And I think this is our Achilles heel. I think this is our weak spot in this community. I think as a staff, we try really, really hard to develop content that is worthwhile and meaningful and challenging and convicting and biblically dense and rich. And we host events that build friendships and we have these powerful worship nights and experiences. But we will never become the community that is actually becoming more and more and more like Jesus if we praise God on Tuesdays and then turn right around and are cutthroat to people around us every other day of the week. Like I said, 
It might come across harsh, and I don't want it to feel like I'm pointing fingers or inducing shame, but this mattered to James. And this matters to me deeply. I do not want us to be nonchalant with our words. So why do you think this matters to James? Why do you think this matters to me? Why do you think I care about this? Why do you think God would care so much about our words? Again, if you have your Bibles, keep a little tab in James. I want you to flip to Matthew. Matthew 12, 34. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders at the times who are being kind of condemned because what? What's the number one thing non-believers say about Christians? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Yes, they're being hypocrites. And Jesus says to them, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. It's not that we're supposed to be micromanagers of our words, like just because. This matters intensely because what is really happening is the words you say, the words you speak out loud are a direct reflection of the state of your heart. And what does God care most about? He cares most about your heart. James, he cared most about the heart of the people that he was speaking to that were involved in his church community. What do I care most about? I care most about the hearts of every single one of you in this space. It's not that I just want a thriving ministry or I want this to be just bursting at the seams with numbers or I want you to have the time of your life. All those things are really great. But why I am here working this job is because I care deeply about the state of your hearts and I want you to be thriving believers. So what do the words you see, you speak, say about the state of your heart? Are you full of joy of the Lord? Are you a complainer? Do you use sarcasm to cover over your real emotions? What is the state of your heart if you had to put a word to it right now? This can feel very daunting. It can feel very heavy if you don't typically think about your words or your heart posture very much. And my guess is you probably don't. As a pastor, this is like something I like contemplate. It keeps me up at night. But the average person probably doesn't think this deeply about the heart posture that you have. But remember what I said week one or what Elizabeth said last week or what James makes super, super clear in this book? You cannot call yourself a Christian and then stay the exact same way that you were before. Your faith should be an outpouring of the transformation God is doing in your heart. And here is the good news about all of our hearts, okay? If you call yourself a Christian, here are the good news about our hearts. We no longer have what's called as hearts of stone, okay? Again, if you have your Bibles, we're flipping again. Ezekiel 36, 26. God says, I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. This is such good news for us because we are not left to figure this all out alone. We have the spirit of God within us to help. And so the question becomes this, if I have a new heart, if I have the spirit of God living within me, then do the words that I speak sound like the spirit of God? And to fully understand that question, you first have to ask, okay, what does the Spirit of God sound like? I think this stems from the wisdom, heavenly wisdom. And James paints a really clear picture of these two different types of wisdom. Let's go back to James verse 13, chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. So I'll ask again, we all want to be wise, we all want to be mature, and we all want to be faithful, right? Okay, then let's see which wisdom we are all latching on to. These are the two different kinds. In verse 14, he says, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. I want you to think back over your last week. I want you to think about all the conversations you have had this week with all different kinds of people. Do any of those conversations resemble any sort of envy or selfish ambition? Because that is not what the Spirit of God sounds like. So, what does that wisdom look and sound like? James tells us in verse 17, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, full of good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What does the wisdom and spirit of God look and sound like? Pure, not crass, submitting to God's authority, not driven by your own desires, full of mercy, not judgment, sincere, authentic, not shady or full of lies, peace. Think again about the words you have said this week. Can you confidently say that your words were full of peace? Could you say that you are more of a peacemaker? Or are you more of an instigator or agitator? 
we want to be wise, we want to be mature, we want to be faithful people, then this is the one step to living out your faith. This is how you have discipline over your tongue. You spend time with God to know what the Spirit of God actually sounds like. And you take inventory of your words. Before you speak, run through the filter of heavenly wisdom and heavenly thoughts. And this sounds so annoying and like it's going to take a lot of time. If you actually care about this, it really is not that complicated. I want you to ask yourself these questions. Why am I wanting to speak right now? Like actually, like why do I want to like talk right now? What is my motivation? What will my words say about my heart? Are the words I want to speak honoring to God and myself and others? Will the person I am speaking to feel more loved after I speak? Will my words ignite more peace? I'll go ahead and invite the band back up. I want to close with this. Do you remember what I taught you guys about what James' understanding of perfection is? You have to like really think three weeks ago. It was a long time in college years. James loves the word perfect. Remember? I told you he says it more than seven times. And what he's saying when he says perfect actually means wholeness. Wholeness, integrity, This conversation around mastering our words is a really, really hard thing to do because I get it. It would be so much easier to just say, hey, I have free speech. I don't really care. I am proud of the fact that I have no filter and I'm bold and I'm honest and I'm just going to say whatever is on my mind. But that is not the goal of our lives, guys. It is not the goal. James says in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. He is so aware of how hard this is. This dude was murdered for his faith. I think he probably wanted to say something to the people who were about to put him to death. But here he is writing about how important our words are. And he says, anyone is never at fault who is never at fault with what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. There's that word, perfect. Wholeness. That is the goal. God is renewing and refining our hearts every single moment of every single day. When you wake up, your heart's being refined. When you go to sleep, your heart's being renewed. When you wake up, your heart's being refined. Why? To make us whole again. So we are whole, perfect image bearers he created us to be and right now I think if we're honest you can probably think of something that someone has said to you that has like deeply wounded you you probably remembered that quicker than you can remember what you said this morning that alone is the only example I need that words matter you can also probably think pretty quickly about something that has been really meaningful to you that someone has said to you When we are careless with our words, James calls that disorderly 
and corrupt. And that like wounded feeling that you probably had just a minute ago when you're remembering that is what he's talking about. That is disordered love and it's corrupt. And you have felt the consequence of that. You know what disorder reminds me of? If you think back, Genesis 1, most of my sermons, I somehow tie this to the creation story because it's like my favorite part of scripture. Before anything, there was this disorder. And then what did God do? God spoke. And through his speech, through his words, he created. He created order and beauty and life. And as his image bearers, we are gifted with this blessing of speech. You think how weird that is? Like no other creation like speaks like we do. That is a gift and a blessing as being image bearers and we also carry the power to create from our words. And we can erupt crazy corruption, crazy disorder, crazy chaos. Or we can bring about beauty and life and restoration. We are all creators by nature as God's image bearers and children. So it is really, it is in your best interest, it is in the best interest of others, and it is the best interest of the world if we take this seriously and decide, what will you create and what will you speak into existence? Will you be led by heavenly wisdom? Wisdom of peace, and pureness, wisdom of mercy and sincerity? Will you be marked by the Spirit living with your new heart? Will you create life with your words? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you gave us this gift of speech. Lord, I thank you that we have you as the ultimate speaker and creator of our lives to speak life and truth and remind us of what true wisdom looks like. Lord, I pray that your presence and your comfort would heal those parts of us that have been wounded by other people's hurtful words. And Lord, I pray that we would be convicted and transformed by your spirit to not repeat the wounds, to not be people who are hurtful and harmful, but be people who are life-giving. Lord, I pray that the students in this room, the staff in this room, the volunteers in this room, that we would be eager to leave here and go be people who encourage and create life and beauty with this gift you have given us. Lord, I pray we don't waste it. I pray that we don't cause disruption and harm with it. 
Lord, you are so good, and I pray we would be overwhelmed by your goodness. We would be eager to be good just like you. Lord, I pray we would be in tune with your spirit to guide us, to lead us, and to give us words of holiness and health and encouragement to speak out to anyone that we meet tonight and thus far. Lord, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.